In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even watch? narrowing down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Uh... Wouldn't it be easier to leave things to chance? Okay, talking isn't getting us anywhere. We need to figure out another way to go. Why don't we just roll some dice to figure out who gets to pick and what genre we do? Whatever. Here we go. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where the movie we watch is decided by the roll of a die. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Diecast Movie Podcast. My name is Michaela. I'm joined here with my dad, Steve, and my brother, Ben, and our adorable puppy, Milo, is taking a nap right next to us. This is a special Halloween episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. We did a special die roll to see who could pick a Halloween movie for us to watch, and Dad won the die roll. So, would you like to introduce the movie and give a brief synopsis, Dad? Sure. It's Arsenic and Old Lace, 1944 classic with Cary Grant, and um, one of my all time favorites. I like to watch it around this time of the year because it takes place on Halloween, so it's always great to watch on Halloween. And, uh, John, Cary Grant plays Mortimer Brewster, who just recently got married, comes back home to Brooklyn to um, for his wife to pack up her stuff at the house next door, goes to visit his aunts and uh, to tell them the news. Everybody seems to know he was going to get married except for him, you know, for like when he first met, ever, first met his wife-to-be and that kind of stuff. And when he gets to the house, he finds out there's a body in the house underneath the window seat. And he talks to his aunts and finds out that he first thought it was his brother, Teddy, who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt. And he, they find out that actually it was the ants that have killed these people by using arsenic in wine with other little extra things to make it get that right kick. And they put the gentleman down in the basement and buried him because Teddy thinks it's the Panama canal. And he thinks they died of yellow fever this is making Mortimer's head swim. He forgets he's married. He's trying to get this all taken care of. And then to top it all off, his long estranged brother Jonathan shows up because he broke out of prison with his sidekick, Dr. Einstein, played by Peter Lorre. And it just really just escalates and escalates in comedic hijinks leading to a crescendo at the end. And we'll talk about all that when we talk about our favorite parts. But really, I just enjoyed the movie. It's just, it's just fun slapstick screwball halloween goodness that's true it is and i have to say one of my favorite parts that's at the beginning is when mortimer first discovers uh mr hotchkins which is the dead body in the window seat he's looking around for this manuscript that he had started writing about um i think ways to avoid marriage or how marriage is awful because he's this renowned film critic that writes books about how marriage is horrible and should be avoided at all costs and 
ironically, he is now married. Um, so he doesn't want his new wife to find this manuscript that he has hidden at his aunt's house. So he's looking in all the different drawers and the desk and in the hutch. And then, you know, he opens the window seat. He looks in there. He's talking to his aunts the whole time. And then he closes the window seat and goes to start looking somewhere else. Then he kind of stops. Then he goes back and he opens the window seat again. Then he looks out. He looks in the window seat. He closes it. He opens it again. He's like, hmm, there's a body. Then, then he thinks his brother Teddy did it. So then he's trying to trying to break it to his his aunts that they're gonna have to send Teddy to Happydale sooner than they thought, and he, they're like, oh no, dear. And then they try to reassure him that Teddy didn't do anything because that is one of their gentlemen in the window box. I have to say, one of my favorite parts in the beginning of the movie is when Mortimer was running out of the house and he accidentally had Mr. Hodgkins's hat on. And I think it was his Aunt Martha was like, no, it was his Aunt Abby picked up the hat and was dusting it off and then handed it to Martha. And she was going to put it in this little cupboard next to the window seat. And you open it and then you see all these hats sitting in the cupboard and she puts it on the shelf. And I was like, oh, they're collecting trophies? What can you say? The ants were the two most lovable, caring, nicest serial killers that you ever meet. I know. Yeah, nobody suspected them. The police officers even frequently come into their house and talk with them because they're friendly. They were like, they were like known as the philanthropic ant old ladies of the neighborhood, I guess. Because mm-hmm. they were, in one scene, I believe, they were either giving candy or pumpkins out to children through yeah, a window they were trick-or-treating because yeah it's halloween so they were giving out pies and candy and carved pumpkins and teddy who believes he's theodore roosevelt was making like model boats and different toys for kids and was giving them to the police officers to take to the station to give away and stuff so it's like you on the surface they're this really sweet loving family but underneath they don't realize they're killing people and that that's wrong. They think they're just letting them rest in peace. They're just helping them find that nice, calm, peacefulness that they don't have in life. One even was alive long enough to say, dang, that's some good wine. Don't drink the elderberry wine. When people offer you elderberry wine, don't drink it. I learned that from this movie. <laughs> yes. It always takes me back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Your mother is a hamster and your father smells of elderberries. Greatest insult of all time. That's what takes you back? That t- This takes me back to that quote of the French guy on the wall shouting that down to the King Arthur. That doesn't remind you of this? No, I saw that first. Oh. I don't know what you could say, listeners. It's That's, that's how Ben... Draws different things and has whatever. I, 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 I he takes after his mother. Okay, who talks <laughs> about elderberries very often? Like, there are two elder elderberry quotes. You don't hear one and then think of the other one. No, but I can see how you could draw that um, parallel. Welcome to the Elderberry Podcast, where we talk about elderberries. It's a bush. I'd rather talk about some Elder Scrolls. This was directed by Frank Frank Capra. <laughs> 
<laughs> this this lovely movie and Frank Capra, of course, has done many, many different films, but he wanted to get out of always doing these uh, more social conscious type movies and wanted to go to something that was just a screwball comedy. Let's have fun. And they, they filmed it in 1941 and he finished the editing in the 1942. The film would have had to wait a couple of years because they had a contract set up where once the play, which is his based off, was done, it's run, then they could put the movie out. So that was the deal. And one of the main things about the play, Boris Karloff played Jonathan Brewster. And this one, it's Raymond Massey. And Boris Karloff, being one of the producers for the play and with the other producers, would not let him go for the eight weeks to do the filming, even though they offered Humphrey Bogart to take his place in the play for that role, the producer still said no. And that's why Boris Karloff is not in this. But And that's why when they refer to Jonathan Brewster, they refer to him as Boris Karloff and that kind of stuff. Because I think in the play, they always would say Boris Karloff looks a lot like Frankenstein. So this way they can get, instead of saying Frankenstein, they would do the Boris Karloff referencing. So it's a little interesting tidbit, and that's why um, if you look at jo- um, Jonathan Brewster or Raymond Massey's makeup to look like Jonathan Brewster, he looks a lot like Boris Karloff in that, and that's why he takes it as an insult. And they do kind of reference the um, Frankenstein movie because the the um, two aunts, um, Abby and Margaret, take... Oh, Martha. Martha. There we go. Martha. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Um, take... A little the, neighborhood kid. Yeah, they take this uh, little neighborhood kid. They just refer to him as Junior. Yeah. Um, they take him to the movies, and this little kid ends up tricking them to go see what Martha calls a scary movie, and it can assume that that was Frankenstein, Frankenstein because then when Jonathan come ho- comes home, they're like, doesn't he look like that? person from the picture yeah and then every time somebody comes in they're like oh he looks like that person from the movie (laughs) and you can see him just getting madder and madder and madder until finally officer o'hara says that he looks like boris karloff and he snaps well because that's what caused the end of mr spinozo yes oh it's true i thought mr spinozo died because he was going to shake them down for money well, he was trying to shake him down, too, but then he, he ended up saying that he looked like Boris Karloff. I think that's what oh. Jonathan said, is that he said he looked like Boris Karloff, and that was the final straw that oh, you're right. snapped him. Because he said that to Mortimer, that, like, the, you know what happened to the last person that said that? <laughs> was kind of what he implied. Well, let's put it this way. Jonathan had been under a lot of pressure during this whole thing because he's trying to get rid of a stiff. He's, he wants to kill Mortimer, keeps getting interrupted because he wants to do the Melbourne method. Hasn't slept for 48 hours. And I thought what I loved most about the movie with the cinematography was that when he and Dr. Einstein were talking in the basement, the shadowing, the way they set it up is that the, you could see Raymond Massey's shadow, Jonathan Brewster's shadow, as Dr. Einstein, Peter Lorre's character, is talking and the way they did it was, it, it looks like the Frankenstein monster's image talking to Dr. Einstein. So I thought that was done rather well. I thought it was kind of funny how no one in this movie ever sleeps. Because, like, when the lieutenant comes in, he's like, I haven't slept in 48 hours. 
And when Jonathan and Dr. Einstein got there, Dr. Einstein was like, I haven't slept in 48 hours. Why don't people sleep in this movie? Like, what is the point? I think those two things were connected because Jonathan Brewster and Dr. Einstein had escaped. Escaped, Then the police lieutenant hadn't been sleeping because they'd been on the lookout trying to capture him. So that's why... They hadn't slept in 48 hours. And, also and they were the, on the manhunt for Officer O'Hara, who forgot and, to ring in. And also the lieutenant brought up there's been a lot of murders in the area. And little does he know, he's right where they're probably happening. The, you know, yep. I'm assuming he's referring to the murders that took place at this lovely house. With the nicest old ladies you'll ever meet. Yeah, the sergeant took a great insult to anyone who insulted Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha. Mm-hmm. He was ready to go to fisticuffs straight away. <laughs> well, that, that that Officer Sanders or Sergeant Sanders was definitely that way, you know, where he was just... I thought he, it was interesting that the, the ants kept referring to him as Mr. Sanders instead of Officer Sanders. And He was like, this is my beat, this is my neighborhood, these are my old ladies. Don't you double-cross them. In any way. And he said to, I look when, when you're first, before you get, when you're about to get introduced, he's about to introduce um, Officer O'Hara to the ants. He goes to, he, the Officer O'Hara refers to them as girls. He goes, don't you refer to them as girls? And he says, and watch your language around them. And he goes, oh, you know, Sarge, I don't swear. And he goes, you'd be, be. You'd be surprised what they consider swearing around here. Yes. <laughs> yep. And then, of course, when Teddy comes in, um, sergeant, the sergeant stands at attention and Teddy asks what there is to report. And then O'Hara is just kind of standing there. And then the Sarge nudges him and then he stands at attention. And then the sergeant says, nothing to report, uh, Mr. President. Yeah, they both, they both have to salute. Yeah. yeah. And then when they were leaving, it was the reversal. O'Hara had caught on and he was ready saluting while he was leaving, carrying the stuff. And the sergeant was looking at the toy boats. And then O'Hara has to nudge the sergeant. And the sergeant does his salute. And then they leave. And Mm -hmm. Teddy gets that really intense epic line of going, and let that be a lesson to you, kid. That's when O'Hara sticks his head back around the door to just kind of like nod and say goodbye. And then I do have to say one of the underrated characters of this movie is the taxi driver. Yes. The taxi driver who stays the whole night. The whole night. He even helps... Uh, he, he helps Mortimer call another taxi. I know. And then after he calls the other taxi, he then realizes that he himself is a taxi driver. And then he was trying to get Mortimer to pay the bill at one point. He was like, it's 22. It's 22. 50. I think 50. And Mortimer goes, oh, it looks really nice on you. And then he was like, oh, thanks, looking at his coat. And he was like, hey, wait a minute. And Mortimer's already in the house by that point. I know he went, he went, to, uh, he went to talk to his um, his wife's house, you know, when they were getting yeah, there. Yeah. And on his way back, he goes, for five more dollars, you can own it. And he's like, oh, no, no, it's too small. You know, Wouldn't fit me. Wouldn't fit me. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so, yeah, Gary Owen as the taxi cab driver, you know, it was just a nice small role, but it was, timed well he did his he did his comedic moments and uh one of my favorite parts was when dr einstein is trying to get mortimer to leave the house because jonathan wants to do the melbourne method and wants to kill him and he keeps trying to get him out of the house and finally 
He's getting frustrated, and Dr. Einstein says to Mortimer, haven't you ever seen a play where they tried to do this? And then Mortimer's describing this play where this guy, this one play, this guy is so smart, thinks he's so smart, and they're trying to get him out of the house. They're trying to warn him, you're going to get killed if you stay. Does he listen? No. And he, and everything that's happening is what's going on. And he, he says, and you ready for this? He sits down in a chair like a dummy, you know, and just acts like there's nothing going on. And all he has to do is look one way or the other, and he'll see the guy, the killer there. Does he does he do it? No. And the guy cuts the um, the curtain, uh, curtain cords. Curtain. The curtain, no, curtain cords. cords. Curtain cords. And and then and then of course Jonathan hears that. He's like, oh, that's a good idea. And he goes over and cuts the curtain cords. And then he says, and he sits there stiff as a board. And that's when they tie him up and gag him. And I just thought it was funny. He's describing the whole thing as it's going on. And you know, it's it's just it was just great. It's very good. Very comedic gold. Cary Grant did a very good job in this movie with his expressions and everything, especially when he was gagged and tied up, conveying a lot of emotion and energy using mostly his eyebrows. This is true. It was very great. You could tell exactly what he was trying to convey to you unless you were Officer O'Hara. Then you could not tell at all what he was trying to convey to you. Officer O'Hara had a very one-track mind as soon as he started describing this play about his life that he was going to write. Yeah. Yeah. He said he would have written it years ago, only he can't spell so good. And, it, and also people understand is when he first showed up and talked about that, a Mortimer wanted him to stay in the house because he was trying to get rid of Jonathan. And um, so he had him go in the kitchen. So, oh, tell me all about the play. And then when Jonathan found that about all the other bodies in the basement, the... Um, Tables kind of turned. Yes. Or as Dr. Einstein says, we now have an ace in the hole and uh, and that kind of thing. And so now John, now Mortimer needs to get Officer O'Hare out of there. And that's what he tells him. He'll meet him up at this bar, Kelly's, and uh, never shows up. And that's why when, he sh- when Officer O'Hare does show up and sees him ganged, he says, he's about to take it off. He goes, no, I'm going to tell you this first while you're tied up. You know, and that way, you you know, we can get all the information we can. But it's just, it's, it's, I don't know, it's just enjoyable. Yeah. Also, most of the characters that show up have this play that they're writing <laughs> about I something know. or other, and they're trying to get Mortimer to read it. And he's always like, oh, yeah, that's great. I love your play. No. <laughs> Why would you give a copy of the play to the critic? I mean, it's not like he produces the plays or does anything with it. It's just kind of a... Well, but he does write books. So About, about not getting married. Yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> He's an ironic character. And didn't they call him something different in the beginning when he was on public, like William something? No, they called him Mortimer Brewster. Oh, I thought they called him something different when he was out getting his marriage license. No, they called him Mortimer Brewster. Well, you yeah, remember he was trying to whisper it to the guy, and the guy was not hearing him okay, and was was because he was hard of hearing, and mm-hmm. so he was saying something's wrong. But that's not because. He was being called as if the guy was trying to understand what he was saying. I do have to say another funny part that I don't think we've talked about yet is so when Jonathan's in the house, the ants want to get Mr. Hotchkins downstairs so they can give him a proper Christian burial in the basement. Because he's a nice Methodist man. Yes. So they have Teddy take him downstairs once they turn out the lights and everybody's gone to bed. So... But then Jonathan and Dr. Einstein have Mr. Spinozo, and they want to get him in the house 
when all the lights are turned out and everybody's in bed. So Teddy takes Mr. Hodgkins downstairs and then Dr. Einstein and Jonathan bring Mr. Spinozo inside. But then somebody comes to the door. I think it was Mortimer's new wife. I want to say her name is Eileen. Yeah, Elaine. 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 Elaine, played by um, Priscilla Lane. And uh, so she shows up and... Uh, and Jonathan answers the door while Dr. Einstein hides the Mr. Spinoza's body in the window seat. That is correct. And then, of course, Jonathan's looking around for the body. And all that's left is a shoe. He sees the yeah. shoe and he's like, this is Dr. Einstein. Who also must be some sort of magician. Because you know, he can't find the body... Yeah. Even though Dr. Einstein's trying to like say it to him without saying it to him where the body is. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when Mortimer comes back home, he goes to check on Mr. Hodgkins. Only to find out it's not Mr. Hodgkins anymore. So he takes a couple looks, and then he goes and gets his Aunt Abby, and he's like, Aunt Abby, I thought I told you not to let anybody into the house. And she's like, well, we didn't have much of a choice with Jonathan. She, he's like, I didn't mean Jonathan. I meant this guy. And then he opens the window seat. And then Aunt Abby's looking in, and you know, Mortimer at this point is expecting her to just explain who he is, and Aunt Abby goes, I have never seen him before in my life. He's like, who's that? Why is he in my house? He's not one of our gentlemen. (laughs) If he wanted to get buried here, he shouldn't have come. (laughs) We only bury our gentlemen in the basement. Yeah. If he's thinking about getting buried here, he has another thing coming. And when Mortimer doesn't believe her, she gets really upset about it and says, I would never go stoop to saying a fib. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Murder's okay. Fibbing, that's no. crossing a line. That's, <laughs> yep, that's the line. I so love, then, oh, yeah, you, get, you go. So then, um, uh, who else? He was talking in? with Jonathan, and he was trying to get Jonathan to leave. Yes. But then, oh, it's Elaine. Aunt Abby. Elaine's brings in Elaine's there and they're going to take her to the basement and well when Mortimer, Mortimer shows, shows up she comes running up and the, and the ants come out the ants come down Mortimer comes in and she's telling him how she's going to be killed and Mortimer just is not processing this because he wants to get Teddy committed mm-hmm. and, and he's on the phone with somebody Dr. Witherspoon or Mr. Witherspoon now you got me saying Dr. Witherspoon Mr. Witherspoon yes no I was going to say um but then during all this kind of commotion they're talking about um, somebody's going to open the window seat. Oh, um, Elaine left in a huff, mm-hmm. and the window seat, the window that is next to the window seat, looks out towards Elaine's house. Mm-hmm. So Mortimer went to yell to her and see her, and that's when you see her close and slam the door, kind of very upset at him. And that's when he looks in the window seat. And no, she's no, the no, other body. That's not what I meant. Somebody and Martha. Goes, and Martha. Martha. Aunt Abby Aunt was Abby going to open it up to show Aunt ah, Martha. And both Jonathan. Jonathan and Mortimer run over there to stop her. And then they both kind of look at each other. They look at the wind seat. They look at each other. And then Mortimer just gets this grin. He's like, you can't see me, but I'm pointing. <laughs> he's like, oh. he, points, he points to Jonathan. He points to the window seat. And he's like. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's like Aunt Abby, Aunt Martha I think Jonathan and Dr. Einstein and their cold friend are going to be leaving and then you <laughs> see Aunt, it dawn on Aunt Abby's face because she knows and then he's going to go he's, he's, I'm going to go over to the phone and call the police and, that, and, and 
Jonathan says, don't you go to that phone, Mortimer. And, of course, that's when Officer O'Hara shows up and they talk to him about the play mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And he's like, you, I'm like you're my brother, Jonathan. I'm giving you five minutes. You know, you can't ask for anything more. Take Dr. Einstein, you and the evidence, and go. Just mm-hmm. go. Otherwise, I'm going to tell Officer O'Hara, and it's going to all going to go down different. And then, of course, Jonathan doesn't want to leave. He sends Dr. Einstein to the basement. Dr. Einstein discovers all the other bodies, and that's when we talk about the things switching roles. Honestly, none of this had, like, Mortimer could have just turned them all <laughs> and been fine. But he didn't want his aunts and his uh, and Teddy to get sent to jail. I think he also didn't want his reputation to get shot. <laughs> yeah i don't think that's what he was thinking about most though i think he was probably like oh i don't want my aunts and teddy to go to prison like, i should try and get teddy committed at least before this happens well the one thing they don't talk about is with the at the end when the aunts and teddy all go to happy Dale. exactly um who's going to live in that house somebody's eventually the house is going to get sold and people are going to find those bodies in the basement unless unless uh, mortimer moves in or just keeps the house until he passes on because if anybody lives there and they go in that basement they're going to find uh 12 bodies just lay a oh, 13 i'm sorry 13 lay a cement floor over top of the bodies that never works because who's going to lay the cement floor you think mortimer's going to do it yeah <laughs> mortimer could do it but i do have to say another thing that i like is after after uh, Mortimer gets O'Hara to leave, and then it's Jonathan, Dr. Einstein, and the ants are in like the dining room kind of living area. And the at this point, Jonathan thinks that Mr. Hotchkins was someone that Mortimer killed. And so he's, he's telling the ants about... Um, Mortimer's friend in the basement and they're like oh he's not Mortimer's he's one of our gentlemen and then you just see Jonathan and Dr. Einstein's faces go kind of like in shock and they're like one of your gentlemen yes we have 12 gentlemen in the basement and then Dr. Einstein's kind of like hey Johnny they're as good as you (laughs) <laughs> and then it's kind of a competition between Jonathan and the ants to see who killed more people. And the ants look so pleased about it. They're like, oh, we're professionals. Johnny, they did as good as you. And all they did all their stuff right here in the house. And we went all around the world and we're being chased. And they did just as good as you. And then Sitting right no, here in Brooklyn. And they never got caught for it. And, and I love it, like McCabe said, when the ants started smiling, when it was like when Dr. Einstein proved it, because Jonathan was saying, no, I have 13. And then he says, you can't count the one in the, was it St. Louis? I don't remember. It was, you can't count the one that died of pneumonia. He's he like, he only died of pneumonia because I shot him. He goes, nope, he died of pneumonia. That doesn't count. And then Jonathan's like, well, all I need is one more. One more. And I know who that one more is going to be. And that, of course, would be Mortimer. Mm-hmm. Little does he know that the first of the um, ants' deaths was actually just a guy that had a heart attack. So they've only actually killed 11 people. And he actually had the lead the whole time. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was never Although, brought up. They yeah, did almost get so. 13. Except Mortimer yeah. came and saved that guy. What was it? His name was Gibbs. Yeah. He came in to get to rent the room. 
and they were going to give him some elderberry wine, which he hadn't tasted since he was a young lad. And he was going to drink the elderberry wine because he was oh so lonely. And of course, Mortimer's there kind of the whole time just on the phone. And he kind of, he kind of like glances over there and he, he does, he's not really taking in what quite is going on. And then he realizes it right as about the fifth well, time no, this no, guy's no, about no, to no, drink no, the elderberry no. wine. He he's, comes over there himself. He goes over there to get a drink and starts to pour himself a glass of the elderberry wine. And the ants are like, Mortimer, that's for the guests. And he's like, but I'm really thirsty. And he's, and they're like, Mortimer. And then he looks at, he's like, he's like, oh. And then he looks at Gibbs and he said, Gibbs is about to, he's like, no. Get out. He, he like, get out. He tackles the chair on the way <laughs> while chasing Gibbs out the door. And then, and of course, Gibbs runs out and yells to the cab driver, it's a nut house in there. <laughs> They're all nuts. They saved Gibbs' life, though. Yes, he did. He did save. And then that would have been interesting. It would have been a double. It would have been a triple burial. I know. But no, it, I, the film is just, yes, it's based off a play. And yes, when they filmed it, there are a lot of one. It's like, for the most part, it takes place in one room. They do go to the kitchen. They do go to the graveyard. There is a little bit in the basement. They also have some scenes where they shot on location for, um, the baseball scenes to start the movie up and when they're getting the marriage license. But for the most part, it is like a play set up that way. But it, I still enjoyed it. I mean, it, yeah, they, they could have had some angles. It might have been a little bit different. But I think I think Frank, Frank Capra filmed it well, So, for, considering it was a, based off a play. It kind of reminded me a lot of the way that um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was shot. Because that is also a lot of taking place in one house for most of the play, shot in a similar style to this. Although they did use some different angles in that, but fairly comparable to this film. And speaking of the play, the ants were both played, and Teddy were all played by the same people that were in the play. They were given eight weeks off to do the filming. Again, Boris Karloff was not. So you had... uh, a good portion of the original cast that mattered doing it. So, so for those that never got to see the play, like we never did, at least we got to see the ants and Teddy the way it would have been done on stage for the most part. Indeed. And it, it's just so good. I mean, when I think, did you talk about Mr. Um, what's the sanitarium guy's name again? With a spoon. spoon. Did you talk about, your your favorite part that Mr. Witherspoon has at the end yet, Ben? No, I haven't. Would you like to go ahead and take it away? My One of my favorite parts at the end is when Mr. Witherspoon is there, and he's there to pick up Teddy. And he's just kind of sitting in a chair and listening to what everybody's doing and watching, or what, watching what they're doing and listening to what they're saying. And at this point, there's still like a couple cops around, and the, both aunts, Mortimer, they're all in like the kitchen area, the no, the dining room area. And Teddy goes up to get his hunting equipment for his safari to Africa. And he shouts, charge, and runs up the stairs like a maniac. And then slams the door as soon as he gets to the top. And all that Mr. Witherspoon thinks is, oh no. Happy Dale has covered in stairs. <laughs> uh, and one of the 
earlier parts that was also very funny is when Mortimer first calls and gets in contact with Mr. Witherspoon. You get to see him briefly. And he's trying to say not to bring Teddy right now because they have too many Theodore Roosevelt's. And he tries to tell Mortimer, if you could convince him that he's actually Napoleon Bonaparte, it would be even better because we're running low on those recently. <laughs> it's the oh. whole the whole approach of everything is very funny. And it's great. Yes. I think the only sane people in this movie are Elaine and, and the, the taxi, taxi driver. driver. I think the taxi driver loses it by the end just because of the circumstances of the day. He had a good quote at the end. I always knew this would end up in the nut house. <laughs> but but um, Elaine, Priscilla Lane, was just so lovable. You know, she was just, oh, she just, I, I wish she was in it a little bit more, but, I, I, but you can't have everything in life. She definitely really wanted to go on her honeymoon. <laughs> well, they eventually did. They, they eventually got on the honeymoon. And um, every and everybody goes to where they want to go, and happiness. I guess everybody gets happy at the end, and even Doctor Einstein gets to have a good ending. Jonathan ends up where he deserves to be, but Doctor Einstein was able to yes get he away. Did. Peter Laurie escaped. <laughs> the moment he thought that was one of the funniest scenes too, because the the captain, lieutenant, the lieutenant is on the phone with their headquarters, getting the description of a wanted convict. Peter Lorre's character, Dr. Einstein, is directly in front of him. He's describing Peter Lorre. It was like, the wanted criminal is five foot three, about 140 pounds. 40 years old. 40 years old. Talks with a slight German accent. Is convincing people that he's a doctor. <laughs> and every time he says something... You can just see Peter Lorre's like slumping his shoulders a little more. His face is going more downwards. The sweat is coming off of his brow. And then uh, Mr. Witherspoon goes, oh, and this is the doctor who signed the papers. And the lieutenant shakes his hand and sends him out the door. And <laughs> Dr. Einstein is like, bye. And bolts. <laughs> he was out of there. He, just like he wanted to do the whole picture. He didn't want to stay. He finally got out. But I find what's funny with the lieutenant is the officers, the sergeant and the officers after the brouhaha and the guy and Jonathan's laying on the floor says, yeah, they said he looked like Boris Karloff. And then he started going after it. He says, looks like Boris Karloff, roll him over. And he's like, looks like Boris Karloff. Do you guys not look at the posters that we put up? This guy's the escape person we've been looking for. And, you know, and I thought it was funny that he's able to nail that one, but totally misses on Dr. Einstein, who's because he's like his, his companions, you know, and it's been said to describe him. And there he is. But I think what helped is that he never heard Dr. Einstein speak. As, <laughs> yep. as soon as Peter Laurie started interacting with him, he like just stopped talking completely, just like started shaking his head and never spoke again. It's like, this is how I escape. Oh, man. And and yes, yes, he was in prison, but I mean, he did try to save Mortimer. And so he was kind of um, somewhat a redemptive arc, maybe. Yes. <laughs> Slightly. Oh, what was it that he said about the description of Jonathan? He was like, the one thing written in the description was looks like Boris Karloff. 
month or something like that. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and they did good makeup on um like Raymond Massey to, to pull off the scarring and they the make him look like the Frankenstein monster Boris Karloff combo. Yes. So it was it was done well. I was going to say I kind of wondered if at the time if that was something that people said about Raymond Massey was like that he looked kind of like Boris Karloff. But I'm thinking that that wasn't the case. No. I mean, he does have that tall, kind of broader-shouldered look, like lean look. But, yeah, it seemed like he had a very different face. I don't know if Raymond Massey is really that tall compared to – because Cary Grant is tall. I think it was the way it was angled with the cameras and stuff, and maybe it had him wearing platform shoes, was to make Raymond Massey look taller – because I saw, I've seen yeah. Raymond Massey in other films, um, this, the old Dark House, Abe Lincoln in Illinois, in which he, which he was nominated for an Oscar, and uh, he, he does, you know, he's tall, but he's, not, I don't know if he's that much taller than Cary Grant, who's also a tall, yeah. actor. So he did look like three or four inches taller than him in this film. So it, I guess that's how tall Boris Karloff might have been over Cary Grant, or how tall they wanted the character to be, but it was. A significant height difference to where I could see that they might have had him on platforms or done it like had him. A lot of the times they were talking, Jonathan was on the stair in the beginning of the scene. They might have had him just like stay on that bottom stair or something when they shot that part. Yeah, it could have been some forced perspective and other things that they that they did to give us the illusion of more height with um, Jonathan's character. And which is fine. I'm not I mean, it, and maybe, and maybe Raymond Massey was that much taller, but I've seen him in other things where he's not towering over people. So it makes me think that there was more of a forced perspective. But it's very enjoyable. And um, I don't think there's really, to me, there's any flaws in the movie, except that I wish there was more movies like it, you know, in that, in that sense, where um, you take different stories and get that. Interesting enough, I don't know if either of you knew this, Cary Grant was not the first choice. The play Mortimer. They wanted Bob Hope. I could see that. Didn't Bob Hope do more comedic roles like this than Cary Grant did? Well, Bob Hope is like a comedian, so he Bob Hope is known just mostly for comedies. But because he, oh, he did that one that was like the Ghost Chasers or something. Yeah. Yes, he did those. And to me, I think it would be interesting to see with Bob Hope because the delivery would have been different. A lot of things would have been different. Because Bob Hope would always play more, but he played like this. These guys that play more of a chicken, um, and Cary Grant, you can believe, would have some of that backbone, but also had the comedic elements. I think the character would have been a lot different from the for the two actors, just because of the way they normally portray it. I mean, it would be interesting to see with Bob Hope, but I think it's better with Cary Grant. Uh, I think this would have been more similar to the type of roles Bob Hope usually plays. Than what Cary Grant usually plays, in my opinion. That's probably why Cary Grant talks about how this he thought this movie was like overacted and stuff like that. Because he's probably not used to doing like that style of over Slap the topness. Stick. Yeah. Whereas Bob Hope, that's what he did in several of his films. I understand what you're saying, but I've seen Cary Grant in Bringing Up Baby and, uh, and other screwball comedies like that. And. So, yeah, he was very experienced in the comedic things. Cary Grant could do any type of role uh, at all. I mean, he, he could handle everything. So he was he was not just narrowed to one genre. So he he could he had the chops to pull off the timing and everything. It's just 
two different personas that would come out for to be. So if both of them would be able to do the role, I just think for this type of picture, what they were going for, I think Cary Grant was a better choice than Bob Hope. Oh, I was just meaning I could see why they wanted Bob Hope because they were probably not thinking Cary Grant when they were first like, oh, we're going to do a slapstick comedy. They were probably thinking, oh, slapstick comedy, let's get Bob Hope because that, that was like what he was known for. Yeah, I'm not arguing. I'm just saying I'm just glad they, they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. it. Bob Hope, by the way, couldn't get out of his contract with uh, another studio to do it. So that's why they didn't get Bob Hope. Well, that's good. That yeah. way they got Cary Grant. Um, I think we've all kind of given away that we we recommend this movie. Um, do we want to formally recommend it? Or... I, I kind of wonder who played Mortimer in the Broadway version. Because they did bring over a lot of the Broadway people to do the, uh, or the people from the play to do the movie. I can't remember who did it, but I know Cary Graham was, was quoted as saying that they should have had other people play the Mortimer part instead of him. And one of the ones you mentioned was the guy that did it on the stage. Yeah. But I guess you can only take so many people from the stage and you couldn't take on um, Boris Carlo because he was the draw. He was the main reason people went mm-hmm. to see the stage production. And uh, but you know, it, it, we can always what if it and, I, and, and wonder these things. Sadly, we'll never know yeah. because it, you know that's the one. That's the one positive and negative about live theater is that it's if you're there, you get to experience it. But if you're not there, it's it's lost forever. And even if it's recorded for something deep in the thing, it's still not the same experience as it, as when you're in with a crowd and and feeding off that energy. Yeah, it's really it's a really good movie how it is. So Ben, you give it a good recommend, I take it. Yes, I recommend this film. I would highly recommend this film. It's a great comedy, a great Halloween movie, and it's a lot of fun. It's, I mean, you'll you'll be laughing. The whole time, pretty much. You're watching the movie. Once it gets into the the Brewster household, then Which, it's just hilarity. I enjoy it. I like uh, uh, it. Everybody can watch it. It's all ages. Yes, there are some deaths, but nothing shown on screen. Nothing that any and any a young child could watch all the way to any age. It's It's just pure fun, enjoyability, and I think it has good repeat value. There's certain things every time I watch it, I get them out of focus on the supporting actors and what they're doing behind the main things. Like when um, Carrie Grant's Mortimer is trying to get them to uh, get the ants to go to the sanitarium and he's playing it way over the top. Teddy is behind him on the landing as he's doing this stuff. And I love it. Teddy, who's not known for his sanity, has his glasses off. And does like where people will twirl their fingers around their head, thinking like this person's nuts. He does that and walks back into his room, thinking that about Mortimer. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it was just kind of because first time you watch it, you might miss that, but then with repeat viewing, you get to pick up these extra little parts. So, thank you everybody for joining us for this special Halloween episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. We hoped you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. And that you'll join us next week and see which movie we'll pick next.
shivers down your spine Shrieking skulls will shock your soul Seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these zombies shriek We're so sorry, skeletons Your soul misunderstood Yeah.